Thanks. Uh, we'll get through probably the, the first three. Uh, I want you to know I almost ordered some 10 plague finger puppets for you this week. Uh, apparently on Amazon, there was uh, 10 plagues finger puppets. I was just Googling around and, uh, you know, I thought, wow, that could be fun. But I thought, no, that's that's OK. But if you want to get something for your kids, you know, the 10 plague finger puppets uh, is, is the way to go. Uh, let's uh, begin this morning by reading God's word. Exodus 7, 1 through 13. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole section that I'm going to preach through today. I'm going to read the introductory section. And then what we're kind of going to do is a little bit different. As we go through the plagues, I'm just kind of going to tell the story and I'm going to highlight some of the key verses rather than just reading uh, the whole thing. Otherwise, it'll just end up being a, a lot of reading. So we're going to try to go also a little bit at a faster pace uh, maybe today. Listen to the word of the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron shall be like your prophet. You shall speak all that I have commanded you and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. For I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and I will bring uh, my hosts, my people, the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now, Moses was uh, and yeah, now Moses and Aaron. Sorry, now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron, 83 years old, and they spoke to Pharaoh. And then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when the Pharaoh says to you, prove yourself by working a miracle, you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that you may become a servant, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before the Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and the magicians also did the same by their secret arts. For, which, for each man cast down his staff and they became serpents, but they, Aaron's staff swallowed up their staff. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and they would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to ask that you'd speak to us from your word today, that we would just delight ourselves in, in what you have for us. Uh, even these things in the ten plagues that we've probably heard many times uh, if we grew up in the church, I pray that you would have something for us again today, uh, that we would learn, that we would see these in a new light, and that we would know uh, your power and your majesty. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The main point this morning is do not stubbornly deny the power of God. Do not stubbornly deny the power of God. I can be sometimes in my life stubborn. My wife will probably nod her head to that. I remember a time, I was probably 18 or 19 years old, and we were riding in the car with my grandmother. I think AJ might have actually been along. And we got into a discussion, discussion over where the location of Three Mile Island was. 
And I was adamant that Three Mile Island was outside of Philadelphia. And my grandmother was like, no, no, Tim, it's outside of Harrisburg. And, and I, to my shame and embarrassment, I remember digging my feet in and, and almost making a mockery that my grandmother would, th- I, I shouldn't say almost, I probably did because I got kind of uh, sarcastic and I got kind of like, well, why would they put a power plant there? And of course it's not there, it's outside of Philadelphia. And you all know where Three Mile Island is, right? <laughs> now I live in the vicinity of Three Mile Island, and I, to my shame, have never brought up that conversation with my grandmother again, because um, I, frankly, I would I would be embarrassed. I was, a, you know how you are when you're 18, you're 19, you, you think you know everything. Oh man, I was stubborn. It was stupid over something so dumb. But how often is it that we are stubborn with God? that we think we know better than God, that we want to take up an argument with God. And that's even sometimes as believers, we still have this indwelling sin of stubbornness. Stubbornness towards others, but in this context, stubbornness towards God. And I really want us just to learn today, I think the scriptures want us to learn today from the stubbornness that Pharaoh had. Uh, Don't be like Pharaoh. In fact, we'll see at the end of our passage a warning in the New Testament that we not have a hardened heart uh, and very similar to Pharaoh's hardened heart. Do not stubbornly deny the power of God. Pharaoh would have considered himself the center of the world. He would have considered himself a divine being, the most powerful person in Egypt. Uh, Pharaohs considered themselves to be the ones who established peace, order, prosperity, a sort of cosmic order, if you will. They were, quite frankly, the center of the universe and, and not, in a, in a, um, uh, the, not in the way that we would say it today, oh, you're just the center of your own little world, but, but almost in a literal way for them. The, the pharaohs upheld the order. Uh, the pharaohs had command over the land. It was believed that the pharaohs had power uh, over the seasons. They were the son of Ra. They were uh, a god, if you will. And so Pharaoh, instead of countering the living and true God and humbling himself, does the exact opposite and digs in in his stubbornness. He sees the power of God again and again regularly. And he is stubborn and hardens his heart. Now, this is part of the plan and purpose of God, right? Because God is going to say and has said already, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. God is going to be involved in this process so that he can raise up Pharaoh in greater and greater stubbornness so that God can show that no matter how stubborn Pharaoh gets, God is greater still. And so the way that Pharaoh serves the plan of God is by digging in, is by saying, I'm more powerful. I who is this God that I should listen to and God allowing him and even Uh, hardening his heart even more so that at the end of the day, you see that God alone is God. It's, It's by raising this Pharaoh up and making him even bigger in his own mind that shows us just how much greater God is. Now, let us be people who learn our lessons quickly, that when we encounter our stubbornness, that we repent of it, Quickly, that when we recognize the power of God, 
we yield quickly. But if you don't want to be quick in your yielding, in your giving up of your stubbornness, of your repenting of it, look at what Pharaoh's hardening of his heart got him as he continued and he grew in this hardness of heart. So God will display his power. Uh, Verses one and two, Moses is instructed to speak again. The Lord said to Moses, see, I made you like God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron shall be a prophet. Now, this does not mean that Pharaoh or that Moses literally was God. But the idea here is Moses is coming in with power and authority from God. He has this staff and he's going to tell Aaron what to say. And so it's going to look like Moses has the power, power from the living God. And Aaron is the prophet of Moses, the one doing most of the speaking. And so there is sort of a rivalry here, right? Pharaoh thinks that he is the son of Ra and Moses is the son of the Lord. Not son in a literal sense, but but in the sense of representing the Lord in the presence of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh would have carried a staff and Moses carries a staff. And so it becomes Whose God is stronger? So it says, see, I have made you like a God to Pharaoh. Verse two, you shall speak all that I command you and your brother shall tell Pharaoh and let the people of Israel go out of this land. So God is sovereign over Pharaoh. Look at verses three and four. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land. Pharaoh will not listen. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and I will bring my hosts and my people to the children of Israel and out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. This goes back to what God has said earlier. If you go back to Exodus chapter three, verses 19 and 20. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And he will let you go. Verse chapter four, verse 21. And Moses, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. The Puritans had a saying. Uh, that I've heard repeated, they would say the Puritans were were preachers. And as they preached the word of God as, as Christians, they would say the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. Meaning some people will hear the word of God. They will see the power of God and they will break down. Uh, the Lord will be at work. The Holy Spirit will be at work. And and they will just repent and turn to the Lord Jesus. And it it's like ice being melted. They come to the living God. Other people hear the exact same preaching of the word, maybe even the same sermon at the same time. And instead of coming and repenting, they get stubborn. They become hard like clay. And so the word of God, the sun shining on them, instead of melting them and breaking them and opening up their heart, actually does the exact opposite. And you see this in the history of Israel. When Isaiah goes, he goes to a people who will be ever hearing, but never hearing, ever seeing, but never understanding. The word of God will come and come and come and their hearts will not be broken. And God in this passage is going to be involved in the hardening of Pharaoh's 
heart. Now, Pharaoh had his own sins and Pharaoh had his own desires, and those desires were not for the living God. And so God is not the author of evil here. And yet God is involved in this process. God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He's not going to come and repent. And I'm going to be involved in making him more stubborn that the more he sees these signs, the more his heart will be hardened because I am involved and I am raising up Pharaoh for this very purpose to show you that I am God. God sometimes raises his enemies up, holds them in his hands and even allows them into his, their positions so that on the day of judgment, he can show people, I really am God. Why do sinners sometimes get things that they don't deserve? Well, one, sometimes it's the common grace of God. God is just good uh, to all people and always gives us things that we don't deserve. Other times, God actually exalts up the wicked and puts them in those positions and allows them to thrive in their evil and allows them to continue in their darkness so that he can show his power and his majesty. Pharaoh is going to learn his lesson the hard way. And God has put him in place for that. And God put him in place so that Israel would learn something from him. And God put Pharaoh in place so that we would learn something. Do not harden your heart. Do not respond to the, the majesty of God with an arrogance, with a supremacy, with a demand before God. Part of the reason for God's hardening is to show us how much more God's power is. Did you ever have kind of something with your kids and they come back to you and they're sarcastic with you? And maybe they're being stubborn and they're not yielding to you. And you just kind of look at them and you say, don't push it. Because I'm more stubborn than you. Like if you're going to dig your heels in to try to get what you want, I'm going to dig my heels in even more. And I'm going to teach you that I'm the parent and you're not. I can't be the only one that has had those experiences. And I, I don't mean that in, in that we should be that way in an arrogant sort of way. But there are times where you as a parent exercise your authority like that to show your kids that no matter how stubborn they get, you're more stubborn than them. That you're not going to just yield to them so that they're cranky and they can get what they want. And this is by way of analogy, but God is showing, not that he's stubborn, but that he's more powerful than Pharaoh. That he's more mighty. And the way that he's doing that is allowing Pharaoh to dig his heels in and try to be even more mighty. So that Pharaoh doesn't repent at the first plague or the second plague or the third plague. But we go all the way to ten plagues. Notice verse 5, 6, and 7. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand uh, against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so, and they did as the Lord commanded them. Now Pharaoh was, or excuse me, now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. So remember earlier on, we looked at this the other week, Pharaoh was saying, I don't know who the Lord is. Who is this Lord that I should listen to him? And now God is saying, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make it known 
all the Egyptians are going to know that I am the Lord. So the Egyptians have this this um, a pantheon of gods, a whole host of gods, a, a number of gods. And God is saying, when I act, Egypt is going to know that I am the Lord, that I'm the living God, that these gods that you worship are are worthless idols. You will see who is in charge. This is a reminder. God opposes the proud, but give grace, gives grace to the humble. And Pharaoh, in his insolence, in his arrogance, in his pride, will ultimately be brought low. Let me make this as an application quickly. Be careful that we don't become a people who learn our lessons from God the hard way. You maybe have heard of the saying, you know, I've been through the school of hard knocks. Sometimes God walks us through the school of hard knocks. Now, sometimes God brings hardships into our life through no fault of our own. You think of the life of Job and such, and he's just disciplining us and he's building muscles of faith, if you will. But in those moments, make sure your account with God is settled. You've gone before the Lord Jesus Christ that you're repenting of any known sins. If you have a known sin and God is clearly showing you some things that he's bringing you discipline or hardship so that you might repent of them. Don't dig your heels in and say, I'm going to do this my way. I can just outlast God here a little bit if I just hang on to what I continue to do in my sin. Be quick to flee to Jesus. Be quick to repent. Do not harden your heart in stubbornness. So we're going to walk through a couple of these miracles here this morning. First, or the second point this morning, is how God displays his power in the staff. So Moses and Aaron are going to go and do this miracle, right? So verse 9 says, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourself by working a miracle. So this is what they expect. They'll go into Pharaoh. They're saying, let my people go. And Pharaoh's saying, like, look, I'm the son of Ra. Prove that I should listen to you. Prove it. Put your money where your mouth is. Uh, Then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. And you'll remember how in the call of Moses, Moses had already been shown that this would happen when God said, throw down your staff. Uh, So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and they did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. It's often the case when people ask for a miracle They don't really want to believe when they see the miracle. So Pharaoh here is, I think, a a typical sinner. Prove yourself. Show me that you're real, God. And then when God shows that he's real, when God gives some demonstration through the presentation of the word, through answering some sort of prayer, what do we say? Well, that was just a coincidence. Well, that just, you know, okay, that's not really God. So we move the goalposts, if you will. And here in this passage, the way that they get out of believing this is Pharaoh summons his wise men and sorcerers, verse 11, his magicians, and they can do the same thing in their secret arts. In their, I, I think this was some kind of, um, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Demonic activity. Yes, sorcery. This is, this is wicked. I, I think these guys turned literal wooden staffs 
into snakes through demonic power. Now, a couple of commentators have said uh, you can actually grab a cobra behind the neck. And if you grab it at the right spot, you can actually paralyze it and it'll go straight like a staff. And so maybe they had actual cobras and they just tricked people. They thought they were staffs and then they threw them down. And, and when you throw them down, they become unparalyzed. And what, what I want to know is who was the first guy to figure out that you could do that to a cobra? Like, who's the guy that said, you know, I wonder what would happen if I grabbed this cobra behind the neck? Um, somehow, apparently, this was a common thing in the ancient world. If that's what they used, it's still trickery and sorcery. But I tend to lean towards the idea that, that there's more demonic activity at work uh, here. I think they would have known the difference between seeing a snake that is paralyzed versus seeing a staff in and of itself. But I want to point out, and, and this I've had to learn from some of the commentators, so I'm not an expert on ancient Egyptian stuff, but ancient Egyptian literature habitually mentioned the royal staff when speaking of the kings of Egypt. The rod was a symbol of the authority and the power of the gods. So the use of the rod to perform all these disastrous feats was a physical example of judicial irony. It was simply an extensive polemic against Egyptian culture and belief. And we, as we have seen, the Egyptians understood that the staff was a symbol of authority, leadership, and power. And that's from a scholar by the name of John Curit. So what am I saying with that? Well, look, Moses could have walked right in and shown some sort of miracle without using a staff. Later on, he'll strike the Nile. Later on, uh, he'll strike the earth and the gnats will come. Why the using the staff? Like he could have just spoken and, and it would have happened. Because the Egyptians understood something symbolic about the staff. And so Pharaoh's staff would have been the staff of Ra. It would have been a symbol of power, of authority, of of um, leadership, if you will, of the cosmic order that that Pharaoh himself has. And some of these staffs would actually have snakes on them. Moses comes in with his staff proclaiming the name of Yahweh. And there's nothing magical about the staff, right? God doesn't have to use a staff. But in using the staff, he's communicating in a language, in a symbol that they would understand that Moses is the representative of the living God. This idea of I will make you a God to him. That, that Pharaoh would see what Moses is doing and, and see what he can do through his staff and say, your God must be more powerful than these gods that I worship. Now, Moses re, or Pharaoh rejects that. But the point is, there's a heightening of the imagery of just how powerful God is. And he puts it in language that they can understand. That the symbolism would have resonated and would have created a bit more fear and would have created a bit more. This really is judgment from God. So think about what happens then, right? These snakes are on the ground. You have this, the staff snakes of the, the false priests and magicians. And then you have Aaron's uh, staff going around. Verse 12, it says, each man cast down his staff and they became serpents. And Aaron's staff swallowed up their staff. Or their staffs. What do you think that says? Like here's the snake of the staff that Moses or Aaron threw down. And here are all these snakes of these other gods. 
these staffs. And my snake not, doesn't just eat one of your snakes, but eats a whole bunch of other snakes. It's saying to them, my God just beat up all your gods. He just destroyed the power that they had in their staffs. It's saying that Moses is serving the living God, the real power. This is one of the ways that God, that the Egyptians would know that God is the Lord. And these other things are not God. There is a sense that God here beats Pharaoh at his own game. Oh, you have power in staffs? Well, let me show you what I can do through a staff. Does God need to use a staff? No. But God is doing everything that, that should humble Pharaoh. And Pharaoh digs in. Look at verse 13. Still, Pharaoh heart, heart, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. So he sees his magicians throw down the staffs, and I'm sure he's probably like, ha, no big deal, Aaron and Moses. My magicians can do what yours do. But then those staffs get eaten by the serpent staff of Aaron. You would think you'd be like, ooh, maybe I should listen a little bit more. No, Pharaoh doesn't care. So we move on to the next plague. God displays his power over the Nile. So the plagues are going to actually be a defeating of the gods of the Egyptians. Uh, Later on, Exodus 12, 12, it says, On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Numbers 33, 4, talking about when he took them out through the Passover while they were burying their firstborn. It also says, On their gods also, the Lord executed judgment. God is going to show them in these plagues and the various gods that they thought controlled these parts of the environment that the Lord is the God of the living. And we go back to this concept of the Pharaoh. The Pharaohs had this concept that through them, order in Egypt was established, even in the physical universe. Like, we would never think of our president in control of the weather, right? I, I certainly hope not. Whether you like the guy or don't like the guy, who, we would never say the president can control the weather. But in the ancient world, it was the king was the son of God or the son of the gods. And so he has power over this. So he has power over the Nile. So he, he establishes what they called ma'at, this harmony in the universe. It's, it's like cosmic representation. So why do you worship the Pharaoh? Because he's the one that through the gods causes the Nile to flood. And when the Nile floods, it deposits rich soil and you have good crops. And, and, and the harmony and the cycles of the, the harvest and the, the springtime planting and all these things are under the control of Pharaoh and his rod. Or at least that's what they believe. So God's going to basically just undo all this. It's sort of like a, a decreation. He lets creation go into chaos because everybody would have believed that Pharaoh sustained creation. Of course, we know that Pharaoh doesn't. So Moses is going to go to Pharaoh. Uh, The Lord said, verse 14, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning 
and he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him uh, and take your hand in your hand, the staff that turned into a serpent. So there is a a pattern to the plagues. Uh, You'll have the first plague. He goes to to Pharaoh in the morning. Uh, The second plague he'll, he'll go just goes to Pharaoh. And the third plague, he just does the plague. And then the pattern repeats. The fourth plague, he goes to Pharaoh in the morning. Then he just goes to Pharaoh. Then he just does the plague. And this repeats several times if you read through this. So Pharaoh goes in and he, or excuse me, Moses goes in and he strikes the Nile. Verse 17, thus saith the Lord. And, and this is what uh, the Lord is saying, but I think he's saying it through Pharaoh. By this, you, or excuse me, by Moses. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die. The Nile will stink. The Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. The Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff, stretch it out, your hand on the water over the rivers, their canals, their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. There shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and the vessels of stone. So, again, the staff is used here. Uh, there are two possible gods that are defeated here. If you'll go to the next slide, we actually uh, have some cool little Egyptian pictures. Uh, the God of happy, uh, not happy like H-A-P-P-Y, but happy is in H-A-P-Y. Uh, is kind of the god of the Nile. He didn't really dwell in the Nile, but he kind of oversaw it. He was the lord of the fish, the lord of the birds and the marshes. You also have Nu, who was the god of water. And you can kind of see uh, in, in the artist's rendering at the top, they often drew him looking like he has like water in him. So the water is defeated. The Nile is defeated. The other one is Osiris. The third one, uh, it was believed that the Nile was his bloodstream. And, and so he oversaw life and death. And so here what God does is he makes everything in the river die. And the fish are dying and the water is polluted and you can't drink it. And, and these gods that would have had power over it in, in the Egyptian worldview are just defeated. They've got nothing. They can't do anything. What's interesting here is this is one of the miracles that the magicians and the sorcerers come in and say, like, yeah, we can turn water into blood. No, no big deal. And this is one of the reasons that the, the Pharaoh continues to reject. What is this, Pharaoh? Or what is this, Moses? Uh, my, my magicians can, can do these things. It's interesting that not only did they worship the Nile, because the Nile gave life and substance. You can find hymns where they sang praises to the Nile. There's a hymn where they sing, they say, Homage to thee, O happy, uh, thou appearest in this land, thou comest in peace, thou art the hidden one and the guide of the darkness, when it is thy pleasure to lead the same. Thou art the water of the fields which Ra has created, thou givest life to the animals, and thou makest the land to drink unceasingly of of thou descendest as thou descendest on thy way from heaven. And now what do they have to drink? Blood. And what do they have in the river? Death. And what's going to happen to their crops? Death. God undoes the power that they would have attributed to these gods. And he does it by the staff of Pharaoh and uh, excuse me, he does it by the staff of Moses and Aaron. So 722, again, the magicians did the same thing by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen 
as the Lord has said. He's unbothered by this. This goes on actually for seven full days. You think of, of the Nile and it was a, piece, a place of safety, of security, of life. You would have been reliant on the Nile. It was, a, it was if you will, the center of, of the economics of the land. Do we trust in wealth? Like, we're not so worried in our day and age about crop cycles. Like, if a storm blows through in the next week or two uh, before some things are harvested in your garden, uh, that's like, okay, no big deal. My crops are ruined. I'll just go down to Walmart. But in the ancient world, you depended upon this. But we oftentimes, rather than depending upon God, depend upon things like money. And money is a good gift from the Lord if used rightly. But the love of money is the root of all evil. And when you put your trust in these things, when you make these things the things that you live for, you're not trusting in the Lord. And sometimes God takes them away. In the book of Revelation, when Babylon the Great is judged, and, and, and Babylon is symbolic for for I think all of earth's society, the, high, the apex of rebellion against God. And she's prosperous. And her ships travel, according to Revelations, to and fro. They're trading gold and silver and spices and cinnamon. And there's merchants getting rich. And they're safe because Babylon is prosperous. And then Babylon comes under the judgment of God in the book of Revelation. And the merchants cry out, Whoa! All of that stability that they put and trusted in human things is undone by the judgment of God. I say this to say to us, don't put your trust in earthly things, in the food that you have on your table, in the job that you have, in the money that's in your bank account. You know, it's wise to save. It's wise to prepare for the future. But the reality is, if you do that without trusting in God, you're not preparing for anything, but you're almost making an idol, as it were. If you think that by saving up, you're going to avoid some sort of disaster, you're ridiculous because only God can present a protect us from disasters. Uh, Alex, I hope you don't mind me sharing this. Alex and I were, were helping Ricardo move the other day, and, and we got onto a small conversation about preppers. You, you know what preppers are? Uh, they're, they're the people that fear like a nuclear war is going to come, so they, they plan for every possible contingency, almost to the point that they plan for zombie apocalypses. Uh, they store up all kinds of stuff in their basement, food, seed crops, uh, ammunition, all kinds of stuff. Now, it's wise to have a, a preparation kit maybe in your house, flashlight, batteries, some drinking water, those sorts of things. But if you put your trust in how much you can be prepared for the future, you are not trusting in God. I'm not saying make reasonable preparations. I'm not saying uh, don't save money ever or don't uh, you know, have some batteries in your flashlight and some drinking water and an emergency plan if something goes wrong in your family. But what I am saying is don't trust in those things. The Egyptians trusted in the Nile. 
And God has power over the Nile. We trust in things like Wall Street and things like our economy and things uh, like our own safety and security and things like the strength of our military as a nation. And God can undo those things. And we don't know what the future holds. Trust only in God. Moving on into the plagues, we have the second plague. God displays his power over frogs. So then God says in chapter 8, verse 1, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus saith the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse and let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm and they shall come into your house uh, and into your bedroom and into your bed and into your houses of your servants and your people and, and your ovens and your, kneel, your kneading bowls. Uh, for those of you that have little boys, has anybody ever had their little boys bring in like frogs or toads? Moms, have any, any of you had that? Yeah, there we go. OK, well, <laughs> we'll get the story afterwards. Right. Elizabeth Sam's. Um, it's gross, right? And little boys love frogs, but but imagine everything swarming with frogs. Uh, you can see there the picture of the goddess Haket, and you can see how it looks like the face of the frog. And and the the goddess Haket uh, was considered the god of fertility and symbolized with uh, frogs. And so this out of control multiplication of frogs. Um, is, is a sign that this God has no power. This God would have uh, protected even the frog-eating crocodiles. And, and here the frogs have just swarmed in their fertility, and, and this God can do nothing about it. It might even be a reminder of Exodus chapter 1, when God was blessing the people of Israel with fertility and increasing them, or excuse me, with fertility, and increasing them in numbers, and Pharaoh tried to destroy that. Who controls life and death? Who controls uh, the animal population and the cycles that those go through? Who controls everything as it relates to reproduction? The Lord. And so these frogs are out of control as a reminder that this God of Egypt does not have control. Unfortunately, verse 7, it says the magicians did the same thing by their secret arts and made frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. Now, in verse 8, Pharaoh actually does say to Moses and Aaron, plead with the Lord to take away these frogs. Uh, Apparently, he wasn't a fan of frogs in his bed. I can't imagine why. And so he he looks like he's going to yield a little bit here. He looks like he's going to, okay, okay, go talk to your God. It's, it's, he looks like he's maybe not going to be so stubborn. And then the frogs go away. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened. It says in verse 18, when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And I skipped over some of the verses uh, when the frogs died. You can see how there were heaps everywhere. I mean, imagine going out with a snow shovel uh, and, and scooping up frogs by the thousands your driveway just littered with them. Oh, that would be, smell would be unbelievable. But Pharaoh doesn't respond to God. I think it's important to note that sometimes people will act like they're contrite. They'll act like they're repenting. Okay, God, you, you've got my attention. I had somebody one time, 
they, they were going through some sickness and and I was talking to them and I said, you know, you really you really ought to go back to church. I've been trying to get them to come to church for a while. And they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, God's really showing me that I need to get serious with him when this is over. And then the sickness ended and they never visited church. It is so easy to say to God, oh, sure, sure, God, I'll do what you want. I'm going to listen. And then when things go well again, we forget him. Don't have that kind of stubbornness. Finally, the last one, God displays his power over the gnats. Uh, This could be defeating. So he takes the staff, verse 16. Aaron strikes the dust of the earth and it becomes gnats. This could be defeating the god Geb. Uh, Geb is the one kind of laying down there, the green one uh, up on the top. Uh, And that was considered the god of the earth. And so maybe perhaps striking the earth shows that this god has no power. We're not exactly sure which god this related to. But the point is, this is the first plague that the magicians can't mimic. So now God is showing his power even more that now his power is being shown to surpass the sorcery and the demonic power that these other people had. And the magicians even say in verse 19, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Let's make some implications or some applications, if you will, from this. Number one, if you are waiting for a miracle to come to faith in Jesus or to trust in God in a greater way, you will never come. If you're going to try to dictate terms to God and say to God, well, God, if you just do this for me, I will come and believe in you. Remember, Jesus tells the parable of the rich man and Lazarus and the rich man ends up in hell and Lazarus ends up in heaven. And the rich man cries out to Abraham and he says, just send someone back to tell my brothers, send someone back from the dead. And Abraham says, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even if someone rises from the dead. If you can't believe the word of God, if you can't believe that Jesus died on the cross and that he rose again from the dead, if that is is not enough to anchor your faith in and you say, God, you you need to do something for me. You need to do a, a, a miracle. I need to see something. You will never come to faith because when you do see something, maybe a prayer request that gets answered, you will move the goalposts. Every now and then you hear atheists talk. You hear the scientific atheists and say, well, you know, there's no evidence for God. And and someone will say to them, well, what would it take for you to believe that God is real? And they say something like, well, he would have to appear to me. I would have to to hear him or see him in some way. I tell you, even if God did show up, that wouldn't be enough. For them. And I say that for two reasons. One, because God already did show up in the person of Jesus Christ, and they don't believe that. And two, think about that. If God showed up to them, how would they ever be able to tell anyone that he showed up? 
Because the minute that they go to tell someone, it's not a scientific fact anymore. And so this standard of science, well, I would need to see with my own eyes, they could never tell anyone else. And so they probably go and say, oh, maybe I'm crazy. Maybe this was just me. And I think there even was one atheist that was honest enough to say, well, I used to say if God showed up, but then I think he actually finally said, you know what? Nothing would do it. And he basically said that because he said, well, because God isn't real and it wouldn't happen anyways. But his, but his point was, it's a stupid standard that I made because I would just attribute it to some sort of scientific phenomenon or some kind of mental lack of capacity on my part. If you hold out these standards to God, God, you need to do this for me and then I'll trust you. God, take this out of my life and then I'll, then I'll go to church more or then I'll grow in my faith more or then I'll, then I'll really trust you with this area of my life. You are never going to end up trusting the Lord. Think of it this way too. People called into question Jesus' abilities to do miracles. Like, of all people, Jesus shows up, and what do they say when he starts doing miracles? Well, you do these things by the power of Beelzebub. And it even says in Luke, they were testing him. They kept seeking a sign from him. And what does Jesus say? But if by the finger of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And there's that echo of the language of Exodus. The magician said, oh, yeah, this miracle is the finger of God. Jesus is saying, I'm doing these things by the finger of God. This is God's power at work in me. This is testimony that I'm the son of God, that God's kingdom, his salvation is here. And you don't believe it. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross? Do you believe that he rose again from the dead? Do you believe that he's active in your life? That when you pray to him, he hears your prayers. That he responds. That he takes care of you. That all of the good gifts that you have are not because of what you've done, but because of his grace for you. And that even when bad things and trials come, God's hand is protecting you. And God is even restraining evil in your life. There can be no rival against God. If there's one thing that we learn from these ten plagues, God doesn't take challenges to his authority. No one can stand up and say, God, I'm going to tell you something. God, you're not in control here in this area of my life. God, I'm the boss. You're not. There can be no rivals. And finally, do not be stubborn in your heart and slow to turn and learn from God. The book of Hebrews says this, chapter 3. Speaking to Christians, actually. Take care, brothers, lest there be in you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if we indeed, uh, if we hold to our original confidence firm to the end. And it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart in rebellion. If you hear God and you have heard him today in his word, and you hear the gospel 
Turn and believe. And continue in that faith, even when it gets difficult and hard. The Hebrews, the letter that the Hebrews is written to Christians who are probably suffering or on the verge of suffering. But notice what it says. The warning. Don't let yourself be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Oftentimes in our life, little sins begin to crop up. And we say, well, you know, that's no big deal. It's a small thing. I won't do it again. We don't really repent of it. We don't really take care of it. And the little sin, like a weed, begins to grow. And then it becomes a big sin. And if you let that sin go unchecked in your life, it can begin to eat away at the faith that you have. Jesus warns in the parable of the sowers about people who made a profession of faith and they received the word with much joy. And the weeds, the cares of the world came up and choked out that faith before it took root. The warning is to us, continue in your faith. Don't let sin get a root. When you hear God's word, don't harden your heart. Don't say, well, whatever, that pastor always talks about sin. That's horrible. Who's he to tell me something like that? Don't say to yourself, I can, I've got a handle on this. I can keep doing this my way. Leave me alone. Stubbornness in my heart can lead me down the path of unbelief. Allowing sins to continue in my life and listening to the deceit of sin can actually over time work up unbelief in my heart. Thinking I can challenge God or make demands of God can lead to a hardness of heart. Unmet expectations can lead to unbelief. In other words, when we bring expectations to God and dictate terms to Him, thinking God owes me and must respond to me according to my will can lead to unbelief. Don't harden your heart as the Pharaoh did. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we just want to thank You for this day and we thank You for Your Word. We pray that you would speak to us from your word. And maybe some of us are on the verge of, of struggling with our faith or, or slowly drifting away in just sort of an even casual way that we need to hear this warning that we not harden our hearts, but that we return and rejoice in faith and that we take our walk with the Lord seriously. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.